0: Today, we are going to get the big picture of the book of Amos. They will get the big picture of Amos. Many people today believe that whoever or whatever is ultimate in the universe is not concerned with you and me. Uh, many people think that, uh, well, as you know, many people even question if there is isn't God. And then there's some people that just flat out say there isn't a God, (laughs) and but even those who believe the Bible and go to church, even amongst church-going people today, there are people who will question if God is concerned about them. They think that some people think that God is this distant God. He he created the universe and then he just kind of stepped back and let things go on, you know. It's, it's called theistic evolution, as if God isn't concerned about what he has created. They say that even if a creator does exist, he seems to be impersonal and disengaged with his creation. This is the question many are unsure about today. Does God care? Does God care? Let me give you some examples to think about. Does God care about, for example, evil and suffering in our world today? Does God care about the suffering and evil in your own life? Uh, Does God care about poverty? Does God care about, you know, HIV and these sort of things that are taking place today? Does God care about the people who died in the Christchurch earthquake? What about their families who now will have to live on without them? Does God care about your life and mine? Does the creator of this vast universe really care about what you and I do in our free time? Does does the creator of the universe care about the work that we do? Does he care about our thoughts? Does God care? Well, then again, I wonder if you really want God to care. Uh, frankly, there's a lot of people out there who don't want God to care. We usually want God to care when it is in our favor. You know, when, when somebody is doing something bad to us, for example, and we want God to take care of that person, you know, just wipe them out or whatever. We want God to care about that situation. But when we're sinning, we probably don't want God to care. We, we just kind of want God to overlook our sin. We don't want God to care when we ignore or abuse the poor. We don't want God to care when we cheat on our taxes or on our marriages. Does he care when you continually do what you know is wrong and contrary to the teachings of the Bible? Does God care about that? These are important questions. And by the way, what does it mean if he does care? Okay, it's one It's one thing to ask the question, does God care, but what does it actually look like if you say that God cares? Well, I'm glad you asked the question, because the book of Amos helps to answer this very important question. Does God care? But before we look at that, we want to introduce you to Amos, the prophet Amos. Now, based on the information the book of Amos gives us in the very first verse, we know that he prophesied somewhere around the time of 760 to 750 B.C., which was, by the way, about 30 years before the Assyrians conquered the northern territory of Israel. Look at the very first verse, Amos 1, verse 1. These are the words of the living God. He says, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. I've given you a map here on the screen. Hopefully this might be a help to you, those of you who are geographically challenged. All right. Uh, we don't know much about Amos, but we do know, as it says here, he was from Tekoa. Now, that might be pretty hard to see, but if you, go, if you go south of Jerusalem there, you'll see the little town of Tekoa. That's where Amos was from. We also know that he was a sheep and fruit farmer. Oh, it doesn't say fruit farmer here. You have to go to chapter 7 to find that out. But we know that he was neither the son of a prophet nor a professional prophet himself. But for a brief time in his life, God called him to serve as a prophet Not to his home country of Judah, and that's one reason it's important to note that he was from Tekoa, which is in Judah there, but God sent him to the northern kingdom of Israel. And since he was from Judah, well, that would make him a foreigner. It's bad enough when you have to be God's messenger to your own people. Those of you who are foreigners to New Zealand understand it's it can be a bit uncomfortable going to a foreign land, right? You're, 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 you're a bit like a fish out of water, in a sense, right? Well, that's, that's a bit like poor old uh, Amos here. Amos is sent by God to a foreign land. In this case, it was the northern kingdom of Israel. So as we turn now to the book of Amos, I hope you will see how God cares about you and how you should respond to that truth. That's what we're going to look at today, in a nutshell, if you will. Okay? The first thing that we first thing we learn from the first couple chapters of Amos here is that we we learn that God spoke judgment against the nations and against his people. That's what the first couple chapters tell us. Now, that's not good news, is it? Again, as the prophets usually do, there's a lot of doom and gloom. But I hope you'll see some light shining through that here in a moment. So we learn that God spoke judgment against the nations and against his people. But first of all, we need to look at the judge. Who is this judge that is speaking this judgment against the nations and his own people? Now, understanding the book of Amos requires knowing who its main character is. And I can assure you the main character of Amos is not Amos. (laughs) Yes, it may carry his name, but he is not the main character. In fact, It is Yahweh. Yahweh is the main character. Now, in your Bibles, you should see all capital letters L-O-R-D. When you see that in the Old Testament, you know it's referring to Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. Now, look at verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2, because we are introduced to the judge of the universe here. It says, and he said, Amos says, God said this, the Lord, Yahweh, roars... From Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So obviously, the primary actor here in the book of Amos, as throughout the Bible, is Yahweh Himself. And consider how the Lord presents himself in the preface to this book. Did you notice that second line? At least it's the second line on my page. verse 2, it says, Yahweh roars. He roars. (laughs) The word roar, by the way, describes both the manner in which God's word came, which was, in this case, was abruptly and ferociously. And it's sobering content. It's also describing the sobering content that God told Amos to take to his people. In chapter 3, the image, don't, don't turn there, but in chapter 3, the image of a roaring lion is used in parallel with the Sovereign Lord. Uh, sorry, I said don't turn there, but actually, look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, because I, I want you to see that this roaring lion is the Sovereign Lord himself. Uh, look at verse 8. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? I've given you a picture of a lion. I think we're all fairly familiar with lions. They're a common animal that uh, many of us maybe have seen in pictures or in documentaries, or maybe some of you have even gone to a zoo and seen a lion. The image of a roaring lion may not uh, bring much. Of a, of a mental picture, if you will, since we all tend to live in cities nowadays. Now, those of you who are from South Africa, I'm, I'm curious, any of you actually heard a lion in the wild? Any of you? You did. Okay, interesting. I haven't actually heard a in in person a lion roar in the wild, but I have seen them, and i sorry, sorry heard them and seen them on documentaries. It's a frightening thing. And, though, and, and Greg, you, you might be able to relate to this, it's it's one of those those sounds as I heard it coming off the, the TV screen that it's a mind-concentrating sound, particularly when you're in the dark, you know, it's nighttime, you, you know there's lions out there, you can hear them, and you know that they're probably hungry. And what is to keep you off the food menu for the day, right? Uh, who knows? But anyway, once you've seen a, a lion's speed, you've seen they're their very powerful animals, you've seen their ability, then you recall that often a, a lion's roar signifies a lion's hunger, and they're out looking for food, then you tend to pay attention to that roar. You want to know where they are, right? <laughs> the farther the way, are, the, the way they are, the better, right? Well, in Amos's day, lions roamed around the area of Israel and Judah. It was a ferocious image for a prophet to use. And God gave that image to Amos for a reason. It would bring great mental stimulation to those who heard those words there in chapter 1, verse 2, which says, The Lord roars. This is the judge of the universe, and he roars as a lion roars. So we see, first of all, one of the first things we can learn about this judge is that this judge speaks. This is not a quiet judge. He doesn't just sit on his, his desk and say nothing. No, he speaks. Amos lists a string of rhetorical questions in chapter 3. And all of these rhetorical questions here are serving a purpose. They're serving the necessary connection, if you will, between a cause and an effect. There's a cause and effect going on here. Rhetorical questions, if you're not familiar with that, that that idea. Rhetorical question is is a question, you'll see the end with question marks, but a rhetorical question has an obvious answer. It doesn't need to be answered because the answer is so obvious. And there's a list of these rhetorical obvious answered questions here in chapter 3 showing to us at least one thing. The cause and effect is that this judge speaks. Let's start in verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Notice verse 8, the Lord God has spoken. So my friends, we see here also that This this speaking judge is the sovereign God of the universe. He does reign supreme over his creation. And in fact, we see that he even causes disasters. There are no disasters that take God by surprise because he is the one who causes them. And this sovereign God speaks. He is a God of words. Now this presents a problem because... Frankly, some people are impatient with words. (laughs) They want action, right? They don't want just talk. They want action. But action alone is never enough for us. It's never enough. Uh, An action, think about this, an action alone without the explanation leaves us really to guess at our own interpretations of events. But God is not like that. The true God of the Bible, He speaks, He talks, and He does it constantly. He is a constant speaking God, and He is is good to us in this way, because as He speaks, He's explaining things to us. He wants us to know who He is. He wants us to know us and how how we can relate to Him. What's, What's going on? For example... He teaches us the truth about himself and about us. He's a good God in that way. And since Amos felt compelled to prophesy, guess what? We should feel compelled to listen. Since God is a God of words, then we ought to use the two ears that he gave us, right? We ought to listen to this God of words. And so it is with all of Scripture, by the way, God has given us His Word, and it is inspired. It is breathed out by Him, and it's profitable for many reasons. Well, our churches should be shaped by the preaching of God's words. I hope you come to hear God's words. I hope you come to hear the preaching of God's words. Our individual lives should be spent learning God's words as well. And for those of you who have never put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, may I say to you, listen closely, my friend. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the only hope that we as Christians can offer to you, the only hope God offers to you is found in the Bible. These are God's words. And there you will find His words in the Bible. Number two, the judge Speaks, But he speaks in judgment here in this book. He speaks in judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, it's often hard to be God's prophet. It's often hard to be a preacher. Of God's word, and when you come bearing a message of judgment, that just makes it all the more harder, doesn't it? Those of you who had to, who have had to rebuke somebody, you, you know that's not easy. It's, it's, you don't like conflict. We don't like conflict, and when you have to go and tell somebody some very uncomfortable words, it's not nice. It's never a popular message to bring judgment to someone, but it's always an important one. And we may not like to know the truth, because the truth hurts, but God cares, and he will act as our judge. He is the judge here. Number two, we've we've taken a quick look at the judge, but let's look at who the judged are, who are the judged. If God is the judge, then who are the judged? Number one, God judges the nations. God judges the nations. In chapter one, I've given you a map here, but in, in chapter one, Amos begins by casting his prophecies of judgment against all of Israel's neighbors. And in fact, it pretty much leaves nobody out. If you look at chapter one, you'll, you'll see all these, these various uh, nations that are mentioned here. For example, in chapter uh, sorry chapter one, verse three, you see Damascus. Damascus, they were the Arama- or the Arameans to the northeast. Verse six is Gaza, that's the Philistines to the southwest. Verse 9 is Tyre, that's the Phoenicians to the northwest. Verse 11 is Edom, that's southeast. Uh, verse 13 is Ammon, that's to the east. And then chapter 2, verse 1 is Moab, and that's to the east. God's mentioning all these various nations that are that are all around there that He's going to bring judgment upon. What's the point? What's the point? There, there is a point, but what's the point? What do Amos's condemnations against the nations teach us? They show us that the whole world is accountable to this judge, to this one true God. Why? Because he cares. Because he cares. Number 2, God judges his people. He doesn't just judge the nations as we just I just pointed out, he judges his own people as well. His own people are not exempt from judgment. Perhaps the Israelites thought they were exempt from God's judgment. They often thought this way because they, after all, were his special people. They were his special covenanted people. But they were wrong. (laughs) They were very wrong. And it's interesting to note that Amos does not begin by attacking Israel's sins, Yes, he shows the nations around are under God's judgment. But before he gets to the northern kingdom of Israel, notice he comes to the southern kingdom of Judah in chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, look what it says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishments because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. So Israel's probably, you know, when Amos comes and he starts bringing judgment against the nations, they're probably thinking, yeah, God, get them, get them, wipe them out, yeah. They're probably cheering. They really like Amos preaching that kind of a message. But as soon as Amos starts preaching a message against the southern kingdom of Judah, then they probably started getting a bit quiet at this point, and and start thinking, "Oh, this is starting to get a little close to home here. This is not quite as comfortable." Then finally, Amos turned to Israel, and then they knew they were in trouble. <laughs> and And he announces their sins and the judgment that it was about to fall on them. Look at chapter two, verse six. Chapter two, verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of a humble, a man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. Look at verse 8. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken and pledge and drink the wine of condemnation in the house of their God. Look at God's promise in verse 13. God gives them a promise in verse 13. He says, Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Now, the Israelites thought their background meant that they were immune from God's judgment. Hey, we're your special covenanted people. You you can just overlook our sin, right? No, God doesn't do that. They did not realize that great privilege meant great responsibility. Remember what the New Testament says? To whom much is given, much will be required. Look at verse or chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. They weren't exempt because they were God's people. So my friend, in case you've ever tempted to think that you can attend church and remove the threat of God's judgment by simply coming and being amongst God's people in a church service? I got news for you. Let me allow let me just suggest to you that church is a lousy place to try to attempt to get away from God's judgment. There's nowhere you can go to escape his judgment. God is everywhere. And he will find you wherever you are. Number two, the second uh, main truth that we learn from the book of Amos is this, that Amos teaches us that God's judgment focuses in on his people, particularly their leaders and especially their religion. So let's look at the first part there. God would judge his people. We see in this book that God would judge his people. In the middle chapters, God seems to be angry and he demands to be heard. When he speaks, he, he wants us to hear. He And by the way, he becomes his own people's enemy here. And, and he summons surprising witnesses to the stand to even witness against his own people. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. I want you to notice these two witnesses that are mentioned here. These are surprising witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria. By the way, Samaria is just another term for the northern kingdom of Israel. All right, let's read on. See great tumults in her midst, and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Did you notice the witnesses? I tried to highlight them for you there. God's calling Ashdod and Egypt as his witnesses to stand against his own people. They were the enemies of Israel, yet God calls his own people's enemies to the witness stand. Yet God was calling them to assemble and be witnesses against the wrongs of his own people. And then God tells these enemies to testify to what God will do to his people. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. by you, but I find it a bit bizarre. How bizarre. Amos' words, try to put yourself in the sandals of the northern kingdom. They think they're safe. They think they're secure. And then along comes this prophet coming from the southern kingdom of Judah. Probably bizarre for them to hear this southern prophet come to them and, and, and stand on their streets, which may have seemed secure to them their nation probably felt secure the Egyptian and Syrian empires had been in decline for several decades the northern kingdom of Israel was probably at its height and then along comes Amos this little no name -name sheep and fruit farmer and starts proclaiming judgment how odd I mean, you think about it. After all, everything going well, and regardless of how prosperous the nation may have seemed at the time, the Lord is promising to bring doom because He abhorred their pride and their unrighteousness. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces therefore i will deliver up the city and all that is in it Hmm. number two god promised to judge the leaders of israel not only did he promise to judge his own people but he promised to judge the leaders of israel and by the way he did not only mean male leaders this is very interesting I, i i couldn't help but laugh when i read this uh, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the words that God gave to Amos He says, Hear this, you cows of Bashan. You are on the mountain of Samaria, uh, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Behold, the days shall come upon you when he will take you away with fishhooks and your pros, uh, posterity with fish hooks. Yes, my friends, God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I hope you can see it there because Amos is calling the leading women of Israel here cows. And he's not calling them cows to comment on their appearance, but he's calling them cows because of their lazy, luxurious, self-indulgent lives. These women had sinned against the poor and the needy. They had ignored the poor and the needy while they go about in their pomp and circumstance. And the point is this, my friends. God cared about the people toward whom they seemed to have no heart for. Israel's notable men also received God's condemnation because they had been using the people to accomplish their own purposes. Look at chapter 6. God does care. And we see that He notices here. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kelna and see, and, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments, and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments. But... But are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captive captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. Why were these leaders at ease in Zion? Well, they're at ease because of their money. They were trusting in their money. They and, and in fact, did you notice it says they're they're even laying on beds of ivory. Only rich people would have beds of ivory. So they're trusting in their money, and it shows that they were actually blind to the truth because money has never bought one moment of lasting security to anyone. Never. Not once. We're fools if we trust in money. Number three, God's judgment focused especially on the nation's religion. Yes, it came to his people, God promised to judge the leaders of Israel, but it was focused especially on the nation's religion. Well, let me just mention, in case you don't know this, that Israel's brand of religion allowed them to sin and to maintain this sense of God's favor at the same time. You remember the first king of, of the northern kingdom set up these false gods so that uh, the, the Israelites wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. So they had their own brand of religion. They loved their sin, and they loved their religion, so they constructed a religion that let them have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it, they, the idea was they could have their religion, and they could have their sin and be comfortable with both. So they made idols for themselves that could not speak and in the silence of those idols they heard consent. By the way, silence is not necessarily golden. Clearly Israel's religion was a sham, yet how many people today follow the same path? They follow the path of a sham of a sham religion. They, they want some religion that will tolerate their sin. They can do whatever they want. Maybe you're like this. I can do whatever I want and enjoy my religion at the same time. Many people are like that. Oh, we love to point fingers at the northern kingdom of Israel, but we are just like them. Look at chapter 4, because God warned the Israelites by famine and plague, but they would not listen. He sent famine, and plague to get their attention, but they would not listen. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. Also I gave you cleansing of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain in one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and there it did not rain. The part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have, have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. You see that God's judgment was focused upon them. The Israelites were characterized by a deliberate rebellion. This was not an ignorance. They they were deliberately going against what God had told them to do. Fueled by pride, they ignored God's warnings. My friend, please understand this truth, that trials are meant to turn rebellious people toward God. Did you hear me? Trials in our lives are meant to turn us to God. They're meant to get our attention so that we stop looking at ourselves and look to God. But sadly, we often refuse to learn. We often refuse to listen, just as these people did. We refuse to return to the Lord. And what does God do? How does God respond? He sends more trials sends more trials so when you find yourself in a difficult time of life and you seem to be continually getting hit with things look up pay attention to what god is trying to do in your life he is trying to get your attention well in the last three chapters of amos we learned that god will judge sin with mercy with justice and with certainty First of all, let's look at the character of God's judgment in this book. The first character of God's judgment, or or we could say it this way, that God's judgment is characterized by mercy. Characterized by mercy. Now, God's mercy becomes clear in the last verses of the book, so please turn to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, we find that God promises that the long night of judgment will end. It will end. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up From the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. We see that God's judgment is characterized by mercy. He truly does give us what we don't deserve. Or sometimes mercy is also described as God not giving us what we deserve. But the second characteristic here is we see that God's judgment is characterized by justice. Look at chapter 7. Verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7, we see God's justice. Thus he showed me, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam was one of the kings of Israel. God setting his plumb line out. If you've ever seen the builders when they when they when they're about to build a wall, they use a plumb line. They use a string to make sure that their wall is straight. God set out His plumb line to bring His justice against these people. God's judgment, by the way, is entirely just. And that which should be destroyed will be destroyed. That's one of the points of these verses. What should be destroyed will be destroyed. That is a God of justice. Number three, God's judgment is characterized by certainty. God says something, He is going to accomplish it. When He says judgment's coming, you can take Him at His word. Write it down, it's going to happen. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive for their own land, or from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You you say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore... Thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. God speaks with certainty when he brings judgment. So God's judgment would come with mercy, with justice, and with certainty. Number two question we we need to look at here as we think about God's judgment is, what is the cause? What is the cause of God's judgment? And we can sum it up in one word. Sin. Sin is the cause of God's judgment. God would judge because of sin. But chapter 8 should also remind us of how much God cares about His people. Here, God presents Israel's sin Literally, or figuratively more like it, as a basket of summer fruit that is ripe for the harvest. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out into or out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and take the poor of the land and and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and in, in upside or subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast in the morning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for for an only son and an end like a bitter day. Let's stop there for a moment. I hope you didn't lose the point there in the midst of all that, that the cause of their sin, or the cause of their judgment was their sin. The people's greed was fed by their self-centeredness, their self-indulgence. They, they, they wanted all these, these things. They were very materialistic they took bribes instead of giving justice and they cheated others. And since they ignored God's word, God would take His word from them. You're going to, By the way, you're going to find some of the most chilling words in all of the Bible found here in chapter 8. I want you to look at these two verses starting in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. My non-Christian friend, my non-Christian friend, I'm talking to you. Those of you who have never put your trust in Jesus Christ alone, For Him to forgive you of your sins, to deal with the greatest problem you have, I'm talking to you. It is a great gift from God that you are even sitting here today to hear God's words preached to you. Lord willing, in this church you will hear God's words set out and, and His word explained to you. Do you understand that is a gift? That is His grace to you. We don't deserve to have His word. Your job, though, is to listen for God, to come for you through His Word. That is how He speaks to you. My friends, do you recognize the blessing, those of us who are Christians, we have in hearing God's Word? Do do you understand the blessing, especially in the English language? We have multiple translations. We have thousands and thousands of Christian books and, and resources and computer programs that will speak the words of the Bible to us. We are so richly blessed. What do we do we do with it? May I remind you, God says, to whom much is given, much will be required. What are you doing with what God has given to you? Do you come every time the Word of God is preached? Do you read Christian books? Do you read His Word and meditate upon His Word day in and day out? you memorize his word or do you not think it's that important what do we need to do well we need to treasure every opportunity we have to hear God's word so i come back to the original question does god care does god care the witness of the book of amos is that he does in fact he cares so much that he promises To judge the nations and his people, he will judge his people, and as we mentioned, particularly the leaders, and especially the people's sin-tolerant religion. He will judge us for our sin with mercy, with justice, and with certainty. If God's judgment is certain, then we have a very important question that needs to be asked and answered. Can we escape God's judgment? If God's judgment is certain, can you escape it? It's coming, my friend. One day, you will stand before God. It is one court appointment that you will not be able to miss. <laughs> okay, When God summons you, you will be there. Whether you want to be there or not, whether your knee bows willingly or not, you will be there. So God's justice and mercy have been reconciled in one place. So the answer to the question of, can we escape it, is this. Do you run to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you come to the cross of Jesus Christ? Because in Jesus Christ, a holy God came and took on flesh some 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life in order to offer Himself as the sinless sacrifice, because you couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I deserve to die on the cross, but... That would never pay the penalty for my sin. But Jesus took my sin. He was the sinless sacrifice. On the cross, he then took on himself the punishment of God. God's wrath was directed to his son. He took my sin. He took your sin. If you were trusting in Jesus Christ, everyone who has turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, And then God raised him in victory one day. Three days later, remember, he rose again, which is a confirmation of the work of Jesus Christ, that God accepted the work of his Son, that the the penalty of sin was paid for. Christ conquered death by rising again. And now he invites us to repent of our sins and to believe in him. So when God's judgment roars, He invites us to repent of our sin and to believe in him. My question for you is, how will God's judgment find you? God's judgment will find you. You can be certain of that. It will find you. It is certain. And God certainly cares. The question is, do you? Do you care?